0: Hmm. Yeah, so just before I begin this uh, talk of a, the first evening of our New Year's Retreat, um, it's helpful for my heart and mind to just take a few moments of silence where I'm taking refuge in the what we call the Triple Gem, the refuge in the Buddha, the possibility, the truth of possibility of our awakening and the, the Dhamma, the teachings, the practices that have been handed down through many, many thousands, several thousands of years, uh, and the Sangha, this which means community, all of us here together with these like-minded, like-hearted intention for kindness, for compassion, for wisdom in the world, So, as we settle into our seat and into this sense of being in a meditation hall together, seeing what intentions support you to be here, what do you take refuge in? Perhaps it's the triple gem, perhaps something else. Yeah, so our our theme thus far in this first day of our New Year retreat has been, whoops, I forgot to turn the sound off on that, I apologize. Uh, The theme today has been rest, slowing down and bringing all of our beginning to bring all of our energy and attention, soothing our bodies and minds and hearts, to calm down, slow down, land here in a little bit more of a significant way perhaps. And I know my body is feeling the effects of that already and I hope it is for you to some extent. Uh, so you might take a moment here to reflect on what your, what your typical day looks like for you. Um, you can visualize this, contemplate it, reflect upon kind of the activities of your average day. How busy are you, basically? Um, And conversely, how much rest is there? How much calm, stillness, attention? We don't necessarily need to be moving in slow motion to really invite the inner calm and rest that um, attention can bring us. Wise attention. If your system is feeling as mine is, the shifting into this, these intentions and this retreat, um, to really attend to that that different sensation and and see, am I, is there enough space? Is there enough? Am I gifting myself with enough? A stillness and presence in my daily activities are there times when I'm doing no thing nothing no thing not texting not reading not watching something while I'm eating or you know just just doing one thing at a time or doing no thing sometimes hopefully Just being still and noticing what's going on, so even if you don't have a formal meditation practice yet, um, (laughs) yet, she says, uh, you know, just having times of stillness, allow yourself this gift of just nothing, no thing. Just be and open the attention the way we uh, began our day today, and even this is a beautiful way to start a practice. And even uh, you know in this time of pandemic and lockdown and more isolation etc. we may feel like we're not that busy like oh, I wish I was busier, you know. I'm uh, maybe we're working from home or we're not able to work or or not not that work is like the only thing of value, I don't mean that, but I mean, um, maybe we're not able to be in community the way we normally would, or be uh, with friends and family, etc. And so even though uh, we might not feel that busy with a lot of activities for some of us, um, is there busy making, busyness, even in, in that? Do we Do we fill the silence and the stillness with various ways to make ourselves busy? And I know many of us, I could venture to say maybe all of us, that sometimes at least, definitely many or most of us are understandably feeling stress maybe feeling a lot of times distracted or unhappy. And the Buddha awoke to this experience as well, this truth, the truth of this. That it's part of this human experience that we experience stress and dissatisfaction things not being satisfactory, not being how we want them to be. Try as we might, we can't get rid of all the unpleasantness that is arising and moving through our lives. And also we can't hold on to and keep all that is what we want to keep, all that is pleasant and enjoyable. And, um, you know, when when things do go well, they're also impermanent. We're all experiencing aging. We will all experience illness and death. And the Buddha never said that life is suffering, but part of this life experience is that there is suffering. And even the beauty, the joy, the sweetness, the pleasantness, that we usually associate, like, you know, everything is how I want it to be in moments, even those are ephemeral. And the Buddha awoke to this truth and named it as Dukkha. And uh, fortunately for us, his wisdom didn't stop there. It continued to the other noble truths um, to show us that there is an underlying cause of dukkha, and there is a way to the ending of dukkha, the path, the middle way. Some people prefer Harvard studies to the word of the Buddha, so we'll throw a bit of that in there too. And I also think it's helpful and delightful that uh, scientists are verifying what the Buddha realized many 2,600 years ago. So this uh, one Harvard study was conducted with a large group of people, 2,250 adults. Pretty, Pretty good sampling. And what they found is that We spend 47% of our waking hours lost in thought, 47%. This isn't just a few people, this is a big sampling of people, a pretty good sample. What does this mean, lost in thought? It means not here, not present with where we are and what is actually happening. So if we took the liberty of rounding that 47 up three points to 50%, we could say that we're actually missing half of our life. If we're lost in thought, it means we're not present with where we are right now. And not only that, there's a correlation between being lost in thought and being unhappy. (laughs) So 50% of the time, maybe we're not here and maybe we're also not happy. Because when we're lost in thought, aren't we usually thinking about what's coming up? How's it gonna be? How am I gonna be, most importantly? how or what what has happened, how it went, and how I showed up in it. And then we revise a better version. And, uh, you know, so when we're lost in thought, or in, if even in a present moment kind of embellishing or fantasizing, we want something to be a little more or to stay the way it is, etc. So lost in thought clearly has a correlation with not being contented, happy, present with how things currently are. And, and we think that our unhappiness comes from the activities that we're engaging in or what's happening around us. But what they actually found in the study that was that the unhappiness mostly had to do with how much the mind is wandering. And so, luckily this is conditioned and then can be reconditioned. We can rewire this state of near continuous distraction, half of our day, half of our lives, um, with our practices of cultivating calm, embodiment, resting, presence, attention, and illuminating insight, awakening. And this practice, as I was mentioning earlier today, is Samatha Vipassana. And this, this, um, Samatha is the calm, tranquility, um, And Vipassana is seeing clearly, insight, seeing into the nature of things, how things really are. And uh, these two, Samatha Vipassana, these two aspects of our practice are, are, have a rhythm to them. Perhaps like walking. Uh, These days I'm thinking of it as a rhythm of sawing. (laughs) Back and forth, back and forth. Calm, awareness, um, to cut through our daily life habits of overwhelm and numbness. And we often, hmm, I think, we often overlook the importance of calm and tranquility and rest, slowing down. Feeling the body, where am I right now? What am I doing right now? Can I just be with that? And it's an equally important part of the practice, not just insight meditation. And um, yeah, so cultivating this ability to be the eye of the storm. To be the calm in the center of this ongoing whirlwind of life, because maybe you've tr- been trying. Most of us have. I certainly have tried to control the external circumstances, try to control the hurricanes of all of this um, this life, and it's beyond my capacity. Certainly, I suspect for you as well. Um, and so what can we do we cultivate being the eye of the storm for some reason at this time of year i often recall very old disney movie an animated disney movie i think my brother and i like maybe it used to run on tv over christmas holidays or something that's why it came to mind and when i looked it up it actually was made in 1940 not quite that old yet but it, it is an old movie they did remake it in 2000 I think but it's a completely animated and it was called Fantasia maybe some of you remember it I don't know do we have any elders in the crowd <laughs> yay <laughs> um, yeah and in that um, it was quite remarkable in its time for the animation Uh because the whole thing was without words. It was just these huge symphony orchestrations and the animations that conveyed the story and the emotions. That's how I remember it anyways. Uh, Well, there's one story in particular called The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Some of you may remember this, but I'll describe some parts of it that I think are relevant for this theme we're discussing tonight. the apprentice is working very, very hard hauling buckets of water up these long flights of stairs to fill a, a cistern, like a big cement tub. And over and over, all the way back down the stairs to where he's getting the water from, two buckets at a time, all the way up these stairs, dump them into the thing, back down all day. and. From what's conveyed in the animation and the music, you get the sense that he's very bored, very frustrated, getting cranky about it, resentful, that he has to keep doing this chore. It doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. He's not filling this huge cistern full of water as quickly as he would like to be. And then at some point the sorcerer, the magician, it's called the Sorcerer's Apprentice, so we'll call him the Sorcerer, he goes off to rest. and. The apprentice slips over and puts on the sorcerer's magic hat. And he's, he's looking for an easy way out of the intensity and the drudgery of his life. How can he make his life more comfortable and pleasant? He's looking for the quick fix. You know, and, and how does this resonate for us, for you, for me, in, in our lives? What ways are we looking to escape um, to make our lives easier, more comfortable, trying to get rid of the parts we don't like, to, um, and to keep what we do like? What magic potions are we hoping will finally make our lives as pleasant as we'd like them to be? I remember, (laughs) another aging reference here, I remember when they said that smartphones would make our lives easier, do you remember that? And even email, I even remember when email started, it's like, oh, what is this thing? It's going to make everything so much faster and easier way to communicate, no. I don't think so. It didn't work that way for most of us. We're actually doing much, much more, like all the time. Filling every space of our day, every opening with this dopamine ping of a a game or a like or the vicarious drama of someone else's video life. You know, so what are these ways we're looking to put on the sorcerer's hat and find the quick way out? So once he has this magic hat on, he 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 gets the broom to carry the buckets for him. Gets someone else to do this drudgery. And he's so happy at first. He goes off to rest. The apprentice says, All right, I got the broom to do it. I'm going to rest. And then meanwhile, the broom keeps working and starts going faster and faster and faster and soon fills up this, huge cistern and it starts to overflow and overflow and overflow and overflow and and eventually it starts flooding everywhere and the apprentice wakes up suddenly and maybe we can relate to this stage of the story as well are we suddenly waking up trying to stop everything trying to slow it down The crazy momentum and even the delusion of our lives, it seems to have taken on a power of its own. What we are using to help us is maybe taking over and just spinning out of control. Well, the story goes from bad to worse and um, the more he tries to control the situation, um, it just gets worse and worse. Eventually the sorcerer awakens and he cleans up all the mess and all that's that's happened and the flooding and etc. And the apprentice very sheepishly returns the magic hat and the broom to the sorcerer and goes back to his simple laborious task with great relief and gratitude. (laughs) <laughs> Great peace. Oh, I'm so glad to just carry the buckets up the steps and pour the water in and go back down and do it again. He's so grateful. He's so happy. And before his awakening, Before he became a Buddha, the word Buddha means awakened being. It's an honorific title. It's not his name. Uh, Before the Buddha's awakening, Siddhartha Gautama was his name. He also practiced with these type of extremes, from one extreme to another. He began his life with extreme comfort. And from the suttas, this is the Buddha's own words describing just some small aspects of um, his life in this way. Uh, I just want to acknowledge that in this retreat there's some people with a great deal of um, meditation experience and that like to read and study suttas and some people maybe your very first time uh, practicing meditation. So. Um, I'm just going to mention for people that are interested in it, this is from the An, Anjutanakaya 3.38. If you have no idea what I just said, totally let it go. You do not need to know that. It's just for people that are studying sutta. So to me, sutta means the teachings that have been written down um, from the time of the Buddha from the oral tradition and then put into writing. Okay, so back to the point, the Buddha's part of his life where he was living with extreme comfort, just like the apprentice was trying to do, get everything just right and easy and comfortable. So the Buddha says, he's talking to a group of monks, so he says, monks, I lived in refinement utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, and one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Varanasi. My turban, my tunic, my lower row garments and my outer cloak were all from Varanasi. So this is the name of a city that um, obviously the finest goods could come from. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold heat, dust, dirt and dew. (laughs) I had three palaces one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season I was entertained by minstrels and I did not once come down from the palace. Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me. I too am subject to aging, to illness, and to death. And as I noticed this, my typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. <laughs> Maybe we've all had times like that, where we realize, hmm. This life has one trajectory, and I am subject to this as well. So when he realizes this, then at the age of 29, he um, goes forth. He into homelessness. He becomes a renunciate. He leaves all of this, all of these pleasantness and privilege and protection. So he goes in the search for liberation, for freedom, for understanding. um, What is the way? These bodies are going to experience suffering, and what is the way beyond this suffering? So when he goes into homelessness, he then studies with the renowned teachers from that time, several of them, and he spends uh, large portions of time with them and is said to master their teachings uh, to the extent that then he's asked to join their community or become the leader, the teacher of their community. And with each of these, he learns great skills of concentration, um, one-pointedness, collectedness but he realizes it's not final liberation. He still isn't free from Dukkha and uh, so he leaves each of these teachers and continues his search then he comes into this stage of his life from to the other extreme so he started um, with that extreme comfort and then um, he comes to the time where he practices very, very extreme austerities to the extent that he becomes completely emaciated, um, experiences great physical pain and nearly dies from starvation. For those that are studying suttas, that's in the Majjhima Nikaya number 36. And he describes this here, part of it. It goes on like a very graphic description of the state of his body and mind and the pain he was in and really really nearly dying Um, But here he describes just a little piece of it Um, mm, No, actually, I'm I'm not even gonna. It's quite gruesome. (laughs) It's quite gruesome, so But this is what he says about that time he says But with this racking practice of austerities, I still have not attained any superior human state, any distinction in knowledge or vision worthy of the Noble Ones, worthy of enlightened beings. And he says, could there be another path to awakening? Then the thought arises. So here's where it gets really good. So he's gone from one extreme to the other, just like the sorcerer, just like us trying to control everything, get things how we want them and and you know, then being really harsh on ourselves and striving in in other extremes. And so he, then he has this recollection. This is again the words of the Buddha. I recall once When my father, the Sakyan, that's the name of um, the the tribe or village or community, the Sakyan clan, clan is more accurate, um, when my father, the Sakyan, was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, then quite withdrawn from sensuality. Withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities, I entered and remained in the first jhana. What this means is uh, jhana is a state of collectedness, one-pointedness, concentration it's sometimes called. And uh, he goes on um, that was mm, characterized by rapture and pleasure, born from withdrawal, accompanied by direct thought and evaluation. So what this is pointing at is what we were just trying to get a little taste of today, how we started to rest, slow down, calm down tomorrow we're going to turn a little bit more towards joy quality and to see the subtle ease and pleasantness to directly experience the heart body mind calming down collecting gathering and the pleasure that is there He calls it the pleasure born from withdrawal. Not the pleasure from getting this and getting that or getting rid of this and getting rid of that or them. (laughs) The pleasure born from withdrawal. Also withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities. greed hatred and delusion and we started the day talking about precepts our values our ethics that help uh, condition this withdrawing from our habitual states of greed hatred and delusion unskillful mental qualities so then he says whoa he recalls this time he was a kid when this happened And he spontaneously on his nearly dying from his extreme practice and recalled this natural arising of collectedness and calm and rest one pointed attention and he says could this be the path to awakening wow then following that Memory came the realization that is the path to awakening (laughs) Yeah, I thought so why am he goes on to say I thought so why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality Nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. I thought I am no longer afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. But it's not easy to achieve this pleasure with a body that is so emaciated, so extremely emaciated and in pain and nearly dying. And then he decides, suppose I were to take some milk and porridge, some rice rice and porridge or milky rice. And so then he started to eat, because before that he was like eating a grain of rice a day type of thing. And thus the middle path comes to be. Middle path. Between extreme pleasure, trying to control our lives. Or extreme austerities, trying to control our lives again, just in the opposite direction. You know, I know you have all experienced some times of ease. To remember times of natural ease and peace, just being. Maybe it was short, maybe it was in nature often. And allow yourself to see the importance of recalling it. Reflect on it. Bring it to mind. Ah, remember that. Can I remember? How long has it been? What? We're just at peace. Collected. Resting. Not wanting anything else. this um this withdrawal withdrawing from wanting and not wanting to remember it and and that this simple and true pleasure does not come from overworking to control the mind oh pay attention oh you're no good at this oh my mind's so restless I should just pay attention to the breath and just stay on the breath you know we're just like beating ourselves up into peace hmm rather resting back and down and opening to how it is ah, feeling the whirling thoughts the vibrating body, the mind, the energy, and just by letting it swirl around and be known, it already starts to slow down, calm down, and then we can direct our attention to what's skillful. Uh, A well-known Dharma teacher, Steve Hagen, I have several of his books right here. He's um, the founder and the head teacher of the Dharma Field Zen Center in Minneapolis, and he he said, you know, our basic problem might not be just that we're too busy and distracted, you know, like the Harvard studies kind of is pointing to, but more deeply looking to see, rather, it's our preoccupation with pleasing and protecting ourselves. This is what Wandering Mind is about, like getting, wanting, not wanting, I should be, and why wasn't it like this, and how can I get it to be like this? This this is our preoccupation with pleasing and protecting ourselves. Trying to get everything just right. And how much of our busyness and our fullness is, is about that? I don't know. So there are supports. There are. There's a path. There's a way to cultivate this kind and skillful attention, and it is not by um, being hard on ourselves. So one of the great supports is silence, which we're undertaking on this retreat, because silence has the possibility to be that nearer, um, to reveal what's going on. when we're constantly chattering and filling with busyness and um, hmm, we don't have the same opportunity to see clearly. Silence is a great support. but this rest we've been beginning with is is not it's not passive it's not just like almost napping <laughs> i know some people here that love their naps uh, so th- this this rest is actually receptive resting it's active. It's awake, resting. Wakeful resting. Very different. Wakeful resting. Receptive and active, moment by moment, calm presence. Moment by moment, seeing, oh this is a rising, passing. Like when we were walking today, our walking meditation, moment by moment feeling everything flowing through, arising and passing. In our sitting meditation, resting with the body in the present moment and seeing the thoughts and emotions that flow through of their own bidding. And if we let them be, they continue to flow through. So, this uh, Resting is receptive and active. Thich Nhat Han says it this way. So good. I'll pop this one into our resource doc as well. He says, "I have the impression that many of us are afraid of silence. We're always taking in something, text music, radio, television, or thoughts to occupy the space. If quiet and space are so important for our happiness, why don't we make more room for them in our lives? Maybe I'll say that again from Thich Nhat Hanh. I have the impression that many of us are afraid of silence. We're always taking in something text, music, radio, television, or thoughts to occupy the space. If quiet and space are so important for our happiness, why don't we make more room for them in our lives? Another great support along with silence to this entry into the middle path is mindfulness of body which we've been practicing today in our sitting and in our walking and hopefully in our eating. Mindfulness of body lets us know where we are, here, now. Know the body as the body. To rest with the body in this present moment, here, now, here, now. And it can be helpful to notice the opposite, also to notice what unrestful feels like. This is really helpful to notice, you know. Um, I've been describing our practice kind of like an hourglass, how our attention is wide at first and then we can bring it in and gather and then continue with that gathered attention and gently open the attention again. in that first beginning of your practice, or when you pause throughout your day, just to notice what does unrestfulness feel like, get familiar with the sensations of it. And then this can help us to know the opposite rest when it comes. So that we can then intentionally know when we need to cultivate inner quietude. The mind is so ridiculously fast. (laughs) Just wildly fast. It's quite amazing how much is happening that we don't even know is happening in this in this this system of of mind. And mindfulness of the body is the first foundation of mindfulness, helps us to slow that down. Helps us to slow down. Oh, it's like this now. Walking, eating, breathing, hauling buckets of water. It's like this now. Speaking of mindfulness of body, another beautiful Dharma teacher, Catherine McGee, she teaches a lot at. IMS, and uh, I think at Guy House as well, Um, I I should say Insight Meditation Society rather than IMS, and um, I can't think of the other place that she mostly teaches at, Uh, but anyways, Catherine McGee, she has uh, told and shared of a meeting that she had with her teacher, and uh, she told him. I don't think I can do this anymore. I just cannot bear all that my body and mind are coming up with any longer. And her teacher said to her, well, you know, this practice is seven to nine times more difficult without a body. <laughs> she was like, I just can't take this. It's so painful. I'm so restless. The body, I just can't. Do this sitting anymore and this walking and this practice, and the teacher was saying, you know, can you imagine trying to do this practice to to slow down and to wake up? Can you imagine doing it with just your mind? <laughs> oh, that's a terrible thought. With this whirling, spinning, ranting, raving, judging sleepy, daydreaming mind. So much harder to calm down and to wake up if we just had our mind, but we don't. The first foundation of mindfulness is the body. So developing trust and reliance with this this ally in our practice, our body, to whatever extent we can, slowly, gradually, gently, Even if it's just being with, receiving hearing or feeling the hands, feeling the feet stepping. Last uh, little bit here. Um, This is another incredibly moving piece from Richard Wagamese. I was uh, referring to him this morning when we were talking about silence. A great Canadian author and wisdom keeper. This is so beautiful. I will also put this quote in your resource talk. Let's close with these words. Richard Wagamese, I realize that where I want to go most is nowhere. Not that I don't want to travel because I do. What I mean is in the depths of my morning meditation When I let go of the world and travel inward I don't have to leave my couch to be filled, given purpose, to get a glimpse of joy. In that immaculate stillness I touch the source and am rejuvenated. My soul is tanned. The surf of my spirit unfolds on the coast of my being. I walk my inner geography and I am healed. Let's sit together for a few moments. Hearts and bodies and minds hear these words of wisdom from all these awakened beings, the Buddha, these teachers, Han, Richard Wagamis. Reminding us to stop fighting, reminding us to trust and to rest and to step ever so gently onto the middle path. actually know that we are all already on the path. As you rest right now for just another moment before the bell, what might it feel like in your heart body mind to rest back and down knowing you are already on the path. May all beings know the true happiness of withdrawing from outer pleasures. May all beings know the true peace of the way. Thank you for your kind attention. We can stop the recording. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.